0: Hello again and welcome. In this podcast, we discuss *Out of the Bottle*, the memoir of Londoner Bram Webb, an entrepreneur who overcame the challenges of the spinal bifida to become a hair industry icon. Join in our chat with Bram and listen as he reads from the book. This is episode seven. Thank you one more time, Graham, for joining us. One of the most exciting things about reading Out of the Bottle, your book, is learning about how those opportunities came your way. You seem to have a great ability to take advantage of those opportunities, but you never really had a grand scheme or some sort of overarching plan, did you?
1: Yeah, I mean, everything for me has been an amazing accident. I can't really think of many things at all where I had any kind of um, ambition or strategic plan or you know here's what I want to do in a year or three years or five years it's nearly all been an accident and it I kind of it's sort of grown out of my spina bifida challenges and and sort of wanting to do anything that would make me happier and if that meant you know going to America to uh, to do a big hair show instead of opening another salon round the corner with all the financial worries. You know, that's what I'd do. And I do think you develop a sort of an antennae over the years, uh, once you discover that networking works. But just about everything for me has been links in a chain that have joined, but really through the most coincidental accidents.
0: It certainly was fortunate that Mr. Seeger, your first boss, was looking for an apprentice in the hair salon. Amazing that he was so excited to hire you after you had been rejected by so many other companies.
1: What I realized in retrospect was that I'm male entering a field in Britain that mostly employed women. And no wonder Mr. Seeger was keen to grab me, because having run a a chain of salons in England for some 36 years, it is true that most of the people that join you are female. Now, I have to say that makes your work environment extremely pleasurable, but you do need more men in the industry. And so what I accidentally discovered, that I was a rare male in an industry of mostly females.
0: The differentiator of being male helped you find that niche.
1: Suddenly you were special. You're a rare commodity. And I think that going into an industry that isn't the most popular can accidentally give you opportunities for growth that you may not get in a much more competitive area. So I joined my industry as an accident But how good it would be to target an industry like that for employment or for an entrepreneurial opportunity.
0: Perhaps we could hear you read a bit more in detail about being hired by Mr. Seeker, about discovering your niche in the hair industry.
1: When I dropped out of school at age 15, my mother suggested I find a job as a salesman. Mum loves sales. She grew up around her father's pawn shop, and for any Americans, I'm talking pawn, as opposed from porn. A pawn shop is where you take things where they sell them for you and you get cash in return, not the other sort. Anyway, like me, my mum had no interest in book learning. She started working when she was 14, selling from a fancy goods store working a stall in Deptford Market in south-east London and blustering her way into an accounting job, even though she claims to have never been able to do figures. She was fond of saying, beware, if I can get my hands on something, I'll sell it to you. My mum's favourite job was one most people would consider to be the worst. She sold vacuum cleaners door-to-door, She did this when I was a little boy, as soon as she could leave me for a few hours. She'd dash out to a strange neighbourhood and go knocking on doors. She didn't actually have to demonstrate the vacuum cleaners. She was the canvasser who mined prospects for the salesman, setting up the appointment for him for another day. Just a gender note, they were all men in those days. My mother was very proud of her technique, which, of course, she says she passed on to me. I would never just say why I was there when the woman came to the door, my mum said. If I said, can I make an appointment for you for a Hoover demonstration, and the woman said no, that would be the end of it. Door closed. My mum taught me that a good salesperson is honest, patient and perhaps a little artful. I'd find something else to talk about, my mum said. I'd say, oh, what pretty wallpaper that is, or something like that. And then after they'd chatted, my mum would get around to the point of her visit. But even that would be done in a clever way. I would just say that I was making appointments, she said. And then I'd take out a notebook, pretending to read it and frown, She'd tell the woman that nearly all the appointments were already taken on the day the vacuum cleaner salesman would be in the area, and then she'd say, I only have one or two appointments left. If the housewife said something like, How about three o'clock? My mum would, of course, consult her mythical schedule in her notebook and pronounce that, as luck would have it, That was precisely the time slot the salesman had an opening. My mum did this for years, happy as can be, sometimes slipping out for an hour or two in the middle of the day. She made her own hours and took great joy in every commission she received from these sales. So when I dropped out of school at age 15, my mum didn't have a this is the end of the world attitude about my future in fact it was the opposite she never had much faith in my academic success and looked at dropping out as a way that i could begin my life in earnest it was simple just find something to sell she suggested i write a letter of introduction to companies offering my services and my immediate availability We searched the papers together, finding advertisements from companies that said they were looking to hire sales and marketing trainees. My father, the clerk, helped me fashion the wording, and I began sending them out. I sent one batch of letters, and then some more. Finally, after 62 letters of rejection, I realised that nobody was interested in me. All those personnel managers to whom I wrote never saw my potential. They just weren't salespeople themselves. They were the people who finished their schooling and they didn't see the point of hiring somebody who'd just been an indifferent student. This came as a great shock to me I had no idea that a lack of book learning would hold me back. I sat around the flat with nothing else to do but to wait for the telephone to ring or the mail to bring good news. But that never happened. Nobody could have imagined my lack of self-esteem, even though it had always been at rock bottom. Then one day my mother came home with a piece of paper in her hand She'd seen a message posted on a newsagent's board in Lewisham, in South London. A hairdressing apprentice, I said. She had to be kidding. I'd have to work for a pittance at a men's salon for three years. This was 1962. And men's salons, barber shops really, weren't cool at all. Especially for a 15-year-old boy. The Men's Salon of 1962 was an antiquated world of broil cream dispensers, dirty jokes and the discreet business of selling condoms which were kept hidden away near the cash register. With my incontinence, the world of sex was a dreadful uncertainty, not something I wanted a joke about or even think about. So I couldn't see myself fitting into this men's club. My father didn't think it was a good idea either, but for other reasons. He was still hoping I'd find my way back into school and he considered the hairdressing profession a sort of haven for sissies. But my mum prevailed, as she usually did. You'd never be without money if you learned to cut hair, she'd said. Everybody needs their hair cut. I don't want to do it, I'd said. What about the germs? I don't want to put my hands in people's dirty hair. But she wore me down, and eventually the obedient child who learned to take his fish oil followed his mother's advice. I telephoned the number on the flyer and set up an appointment to see the owner of the barber shop. His name was Mark Seeger. And he needed me. Something I wasn't used to. And he sold me on the idea of giving it a try. The world is your oyster, he said, talking about the hairdressing trade. What you earn is up to you. He told me to give it a try for three months and those three months led to a three-year apprenticeship. I can't say I loved what I was doing, but I stuck with it, because it seemed to be the only chance I had in the world, and I'll always be grateful to Mr Seeger for that. I had to be at the Dulwich Salon for a nine o'clock start, which meant setting off from home at 7.30am to take two different buses to commute from Green to Dulwich via Catford. This was a really tall order for a kid in his mid-teens. After 18 months of this, I'd reached the long-for age of 16, legally allowing me to use a motorbike. This was an exciting opportunity for autonomy for me, particularly since the law wouldn't let me learn to drive a car until age 17. A friend at the youth club I attended in Eltham had a 350cc Triumph 21. This model was well known for its smooth, purring engine and its painted metal fender, which wrapped around the back wheel. After many solitary lunch hours, eating sandwiches alone on a bench, I saved up and bought my own Triumph 21 which gave me the independence my friend had. At least my hour off could be spent whenever I wanted, and wherever I wanted. I worked six days a week at Seeger's, and then I'd come home to Lee Green and cut hair at night in my parents' flat. I didn't have a day off, as I would cut hair on Sundays too. My mother had found a barber's chair, and with the addition of a mirror, she made me a kind of hair-cutting niche in the corner of my bedroom. I lived in a different region of London from where I worked, so it wasn't as if I was stealing clients from my boss, which I'd never do. Word just got around that the young webboy would cut your hair at night or on weekends and people from the neighbourhood started showing up for haircuts. I used the basin in the loo as my shampoo station, and my mother stacked towels on a chair between the bedroom and the loo. As I walked by, I'd pick up a towel for my client, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, but cutting hair at home gave my mum a mountain of towels to wash, which she did without complaint. During my apprenticeship, I became a competent barber through a combination of training and cutting hair seven days a week. I learned razor cuts and a thing we called the London look, a haircut that had an Elvis-type roll at the front, and it left a brushed style in the back to form what was commonly called a duck's ass. I worked almost constantly. When I wasn't cutting hair, I took a part-time job at a local off-licence, a sort of liquor store, which paid for the train fare for me to go back and forth to the London College of Fashion, which I attended two nights a week during part of my apprenticeship. Little did I know that later in life, when I'd become an established name in the hair and fashion industry, I would become a member of the advisory board of the college. But back then I was just a teenager, learning how to become a better barber. I didn't have a strategy or a roadmap for my future. I was just living one day at a time and listening to my mother. information about
0: purchasing out of the bottle visit gramweb.co.uk profits from the sale of out of the bottle go to benefit a variety of charities including those seeking to find a cure for spina bifida